Welcome to Out of the Blank. to another episode of out of the blank podcast i'm here dave dave for everyone out there listening would you like to introduce yourself yeah hey thanks uh appreciate you having me on your show robbie uh, my name's dave Beatty. i'm a filmmaker um, i live down in southwest florida and you know most of the work that i do is non uh you know what this program is about today but um, i do a lot of films about world war ii history and, you know, I'm a sound technician. I'm a cameraman. I do a lot of video editing, uh, computer graphics. So that's my, my career. So what, besides doing the films for World War, World War II and everything like that, but what made you get interested in the Nimitz? Well, you know, um, back in 2017, uh, you know, a lot was going down in the UFO field. And the New York Times did a headline story about this incident. Um, you know, they were talking about a government program that no one knew about um, called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program being run out of the Pentagon. And then they also talked about these naval aviators that had encountered some type of unknown object, um, you know, flying off the aircraft carrier USS Nimitz in 2004. So I think that's, you know, when I read that, I, I was like, wow, that is pretty cool. And I hadn't been really involved with studying UFOs, uh, probably for a decade, I just kind of got out of the got out of it for a while. But that kind of reignited my interest in the topic. With the alien encounters, for instance, or at least all these sightings, I always found it strange that there was always like a lot of sightings from like jet pilots or people that worked on like naval aircrafts. But you never really hear a lot about it in like the public's view. But if you look, there's a lot of encounters when it comes to just seeing some type of orb or some type of thing that seems like it's following uh, either a ship or a jet. And I'm like, that's why I never, ever threw out the possibility of aliens. I always like to think, like I told you off air, I like to think it's government tech or some something we can't explain maybe a weather phenomena, but there's a lot of credible like people where you're like, you're, this person's not like, they're not sitting on like a driveway cooking eggs or something like that. They're, they're really credible. They have a lot of like uh, accomplishments and a lot of achievements where it makes it very, very hard to just be like, this is like a conspiracy or this is just some type of sci-fi thing. It's like something you actually have to pay attention to. And now that we have like a Congress hearing that happens, you start looking at it a little bit differently where you start going, maybe there's been a whole area where we've just completely neglected because we just can't explain it. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And you have to realize when you talk about pilot sightings that for the most part, pilots don't report sightings because it's, you know, it can be, there's a lot of stigma and going back, you know, um, 15 years ago, it was a lot worse. And even before that, it was a way worse. So you have to realize that if pilots did see something, oftentimes it was sort of like discussed amongst their other crew members and other team, you know, mates, um, you know, commercial pilots as well. And they just didn't report them because they felt that if they did, they were jeopardizing their career. They were jeopardizing their flight status. You know, they're in the military. It could, you know, affect rank and so on. So 
I think that the ones that we do have are quite unique and quite interesting because these pilots were willing to perhaps, you know, take that risk and go out on a limb and, and tell their commanding officers or tell, you know, send it up the chain of command and say, this is a problem. We need this to take this seriously. And they face that stigma, like, for instance, in the Nimitz encounters. But if they hadn't, we wouldn't know about it today. And I'm sure there's a lot of cases that we never have heard about because they just never reported them. Now, before you can walk me through like the Nimitz encounters, can you just give me like what, what's your idea of what these things are? Are you 100 percent in that they're aliens? Do you think it's a weather phenomenon? Do you think it's a mixture of the two? Well, you know, if you if you look specifically at the Nimitz encounters and what they observed and what they reported, you know, I've kind of been on the fence with that and, and played around with different scenarios. And there's two parts to that story. One is the radar observations um, that were made. And these were not visual, like with your eyes. These were, you know, the, the very sophisticated Aegis system that was picking these up. And then you had the pilots that were uh, basically engaged with visual contact with these objects. And those two things, if you look at them, they're quite different. So, you know, you have to find something that says, okay, first of all, these two are the same objects because, you know, obviously it was on radar and then they went to investigate. So if they are the same, what fits both you know, descriptions. If you just look at one of them, for instance, what the pilots saw, you know, it never really was doing something that was beyond uh, our, our known physics, for instance. It wasn't, you know, breaking the laws of physics, although it was pretty unusual. So, I mean, you know, you could say, could it be some type of balloon uh, system that was in play? Is it a drone um, was there a submarine involved that was launching these, um, you know, U UAPs? Um, you know, again, I don't know. I haven't reached a conclusion. You can theorize about it and think, okay, well, this might be a good explanation. But then you start running against um, counter arguments to that saying, uh, most likely if it was our own secret test, a lot of people would know about it, specifically the pilots. And I've had numerous people tell me that they would never send the pilots up there without briefing them and making them aware that they were part of a test. And as far as I know, all the pilots that have come forward have, you know, denied that there was anything like that, that these things were not part of a test. And that fr from that day till today, that they still don't know what they were and their superiors don't either. Well, where do you, like, for instance, like for the uh, people that witness something or they see something that they can't really explain. Now, how do you do, how do you test like credibility? Like, how do you test like if they're telling the truth or not? Because I've had some experience where people say stuff on the show, but they never mentioned it. Like they never came on the show saying I'm an experiencer. I've experienced aliens. The people I've heard it from, they're like, I have a UFO story. And I was like, what's your UFO story? He's like, let me get my like whack job idea out there. And I'm like listening to the person talk about like, you're not happy about promoting this you're kind of just like you mentioned it now you have to explain yourself type scenario but they worked on oil rigs out in the middle of the ocean and they talk about seeing this thing and how for a lot of the workers there it became normalized which made me seem like is there just a large amount like maybe people in the city aren't experiencing it but there's a large amount of people out in the middle of the ocean where these encounters are happening and it's becoming like it's just like uh, if you have back pain you get used to your back pain after a while and that's normal for you now and for these people the way that i've heard them talk about it it was just normal so i'm like there's a whole other area that i'm not seeing i'm not experiencing i go and fill up my gas tank but these people are encountering something that they can't explain on a daily basis so much so that it's so normal they don't even feel the need to mention it anymore 
Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you talk about credibility, obviously, um, people that have nothing to gain, um, if you just look at it, you know, quite, you know, quickly, you could say, this person is promoting something, this person is promoting for some reason. And, and then you look at other cases, and you say, this person has a lot to lose by uh, making this story up, if it's some type of hoax, for instance, and they're, they're, they're incredible, you know, like, they're not credulous or whatever. So, I think that the people that, um, first of all, have nothing to gain that are, you know, have no history of any kind of pranks or that type of behavior, or they're not promoting some um, platform that they're trying to get, you know, people to watch it an audience, so to speak, like for entertainment, you know, then you say, okay, that guy seems like he's telling the truth. Um, you know, I'm not an expert, you know, but you know, you can usually tell if you talk to somebody for a while, whether they're being honest with you. And then, you know, the next thing is if you start getting multiple people that were, you know, present. So if you have like a multiple witness case where you have these independent people that are all telling the same story, you can pretty, you know, well tell that, man, these people, they don't know each other or they're like, didn't come up with a story in a group. So um, those cases, I think, increase the credibility. And there's, there has been some research as far as, uh, you know, cases that, when do they occur? They often do occur at night. The, the majority of these things occur at night and then in more remote locations where there's not a lot of light pollution. So that, you know, out, out on an oil rig, for instance, the stars are just going to be so, super bright and you see everything. Um, maybe maybe if, if the encounters with these objects are incredibly rare, you stand more of a chance of seeing it. Whereas people in the cities, um, they it might be there, but they just don't see them. And you know, that also begs the question, you know, why is it only night? Is it because they're up there in the day, but we don't see them? You know, it's just as prevalent, but because of the, the daytime sky and everything, for some reason, they're more difficult to see it, it during the daytime. And I know that Shock Valley did a bunch of research, um, you know, with databases and trying to look at the prevalence of sightings um, based around those facts. And I mean, he thought that if you if you took what sightings we know today, you could extrapolate that and say, you know, if there's this many UFO sightings, how many weren't seen? And it was just, you know, like millions or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, because when I was watching um, some of your film on YouTube, when you were interviewing or people were like explaining kind of what they had seen, I started looking at it a little bit like. Like, how is he picking out his guests? I had these questions in my head, but like these people didn't have anything like of getting like a platform, if anything. And I think we touched on or you mentioned it in the beginning, which is the stigma that's behind it. I mean, I had a guest on here, Larry Hancock, who looked through all the government documents, even speaking about UFOs and the panels that were established, like the Robertson panel that was established. A lot of those scientists, I mean, they were tenured. Yeah. So they didn't really have anything to lose. But I mean, you were slandered if you were ever going to research the idea of aliens. People would just laugh at you and so so much so that some people actually killed themselves where like you enter this point of like i bet a lot of those people feel validated now now that the discussion is now more open to the concept of aliens being out there and i think that's because of the fact that more people are speaking up about it it's kind of getting to this point where it's very very hard to neglect which i mean it's good to come down to a conclusion we can figure out hopefully what what this is that we've just said we can't explain for so long but i mean that brings in a fear aspect as well too yeah, I mean, you brought up a good point, and that is that if you go back to Blue Book and that, you know, what happened after that with, you know, um, you know, obviously that the, you had the Robertson panel, you had the Condon report that pretty much, you know, nailed shut um, academic study of this topic 
for you know decades. And at that point, um, I think that anyone in academia at the research level, basically, you would have to be crazy to suggest that you want to do research studies on UFOs. And so that we've lost how many years have gone by where there's basically been no research conducted at an academic level. And even today, it's incredibly difficult for anyone doing academic research um, to perhaps get grant funding, to get support from their university or college to do these programs. So it just hasn't been done. I think only in the last year or so have we seen that maybe that tide changing. And even today, if you have an astronomer trying to do something, he gets a whole bunch of pushback from you know his colleagues and peers. It's less than it was, and we still have a long way to go. Do you think that's just because of the way that maybe technology has gone, where we had better tools to be able to detect things like this and be able to explain it better, where the idea of saying, oh, we just don't know what this is, or that sci-fi talk is kind of like, you can't really say that anymore. It's like we have tools that are way better than it was 50, 60 years ago to be able to determine what these things are. But I also think like it's the stigma of the topic. I think the more you talk about it, especially if you have dissenting views, and much like you probably know with entering the UFO community, there's a lot of different voices out there that have very strong opinions either and whatever their bias is and that's why i, I kind of like that you uh, say you're not really into the whole speculation aspect of things you more just want to kind of see the information and do that because that just shows you don't have a bias i mean it could be weather phenomena it can be aliens that's how i sit it can be any of those but it'd be interesting to find out what it actually is so we can actually have answers to the thing yeah i mean i love the mystery and obviously you know if it if it did turn out to be some unknown phenomena that we as humans have just not discovered and we discover life or something like you know alien some type of new life form or something like that it would be incredibly interesting and if it turns out to be you know in some cases if it turns out to be something more prosaic like a atmospheric phenomena or some type of uh, biological thing like a bird or a whale I mean, it's maybe a little disappointing in the end when you're like, oh, I wish this was the, the you know, the, the, the golden egg or whatever. But, you know, I think that um, it's all the, the actual journey to get to that explanation is the interesting part for me. Now, can you walk me through the history of the Nimitz, like the, the beginning to um, maybe some interesting sightings as well, too, that a lot of people probably know more than I do about? Yeah, 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 sure. Um well, the interesting part about <clears throat> the Nimitz is that the first thing that ever happened was this video appeared, um, you know, anonymously on the Internet. Um, you know, we learned about that from Captain uh, David Fravor. I'm sorry, Commander David Fravor. He described that this video was floating out around 2007 and someone had um, uploaded it to this weird website called Strangeland.com. And then after that, it ended up on YouTube as well. Not a lot of people knew about it because it just was this uh, FLIR video taken from a fighter jet that showed this white blob in the center of it. And uh, the website Above Top Secret kind of first you know, learned about that. And they discovered that the person that had uploaded it was on that site. Um, his handle was The Final Theory. So this guy, The Final Theory, had uploaded the video to a, a German website um, called Vision Unlimited. And, you know, some people said, hey, maybe that's like computer graphics because Vision Unlimited was a company that was, you know, involved in doing computer graphics for films and so on. But this guy said, nah, his friend just had this server in Germany. He thought that it would be easier for him to leak it out 
there than say a server in the US where authorities would be be able to seize it or to shut it down because that video was unauthorized and as far as I know, you know, FLIR videos coming off of F-18 jets on uh, supercarriers are classified um, sensors and classified data. So the fact that they leaked that off the ship was a big deal, and they could have got into a lot of trouble if that they had been discovered. In fact, there was a, an investigation as far as I know, but they just kind of dropped it because it had already leaked out. It, they couldn't stop that at that point, and there were so many people on those vessels that the Navy just said, you know, we're just going to let it go. But that's how it started. And then um, there were some unofficial investigations behind the scenes that were happening. Probably, you know, I would guesstimate, you know, around 2010 or, or something like that, where there was some Navy people and there were some programs going on that were related to the advanced aerospace threat identification. And, and they began looking at that case and interviewing the pilots, and um, they went out and found as many of the pilots and witnesses as they can, and they put, put together a uh, an unofficial report that was passed around in the intelligence community and shared with the people that were in that particular program. So a, a broader picture of what really happened um, was painted in this, in this document. Um, it was leaked out by, part of it was leaked out by uh, investigative reporter George Knapp at KLAS. Um, I think that would have probably been around um, 2018 or something like that in the summer. So he leaked out this document, which basically gave a play-by-play -play of what happened in the Nimitz encounters. So I don't know how far you want me to go. I can stop here, but I can also tell you exactly what happened. Uh, tell me what happened. So basically, you know, looking at this report, we have, we have a play-by-play and the other thing that, that was found was a report by a former fighter pilot named Paco Chirichi. And he was writing for a trade website called Fighter Sweep. And it was kind of like an inside fighter pilot news, you know, website. And he had written a story about, you know, the Tic Tac, basically. And the story came from uh, Commander David Fravor's account of what went down. Paco also had a copy of this um, report that had been written and he used, um, his, Dave Fravor was his friend. And so he called him on the phone and got the story, he had this other document, he put that together into a really, really interesting story. And you can still find that on fightersweep.com, that, uh, 2015 article he wrote. So what basically happened was, um, there, there's a whole bunch of ships off the coast of San Diego, California, doing training. Um, they do workups before they're deployed overseas, and they, they go out there and kind of practice all of the stuff that they do when they're in a wartime theater, you know, during the Gulf War, obviously. They want to train up. The new people that are there need to get used to operational, um, you know, status of how you launch jets, how you conduct operations. So that's what they're doing. They're about 100 miles um, off the coast of San Diego. And the radar vessel called the USS Princeton, um, that's a cruiser. It's not an aircraft carrier. It's a Navy warship that has a very sophisticated radar on it called the Spy One Bravo at the time. Um, so there's a whole combat information center with screens and displays and this enormous radar system um, that basically scans like 360 degrees, um, hundreds and hundreds of miles in all directions. These guys started picking up these weird objects and... Um, Senior Chief Kevin Day was kind of the senior guy involved in air defense of the carrier and all the ships. So on the USS Princeton, 
they're the air air defense commander. Um, they're basically looking in all directions to protect this uh, group of ships, and they start seeing these tracks somewhere. You know, I think off the the coast of uh, San Clemente Island, and they're traveling pretty high, but at extremely slow speed. So they're like at twenty eight thousand feet going. 100 knots in groups of five to 10, he claims. Um, there was another um, claim from another senior chief that said they even observed them coming from high altitude, perhaps um, higher than 80,000 feet. And some of these ones that they said were, were, you know, coming down in altitude extremely fast. I mean, you know, it multi mock thousands of miles an hour based on the radar returns. So they basically said we need to reboot the, the, the spy one radar because these tracks are impossible. It just doesn't make sense. The, the maneuvering, um, it doesn't make sense. Um, what type of planes would be flying that slow at that type of altitude other than say a balloon or something. So they rebooted the, um, computer system they rebooted the radars. It's all digital. And now these tracks are even clearer and better resolution than they were before. So coming up on November 14th, they knew they were doing an air exercise with the fighter jets and Commander Fravor on the Nimitz. And so Kevin Day went to the captain and said, hey, captain, you know, you know, tomorrow or whatever, we're going to have this air exercise. If we see these radar returns, we should send one of the jets out there to investigate to see what these things are. And he got approval to do that, to conduct an intercept of these tracks. So, um, you know. November 14th rolls around the the fighter pilots at that time in the Nimitz really weren't aware that this was going down. They were just conducting these workup training exercises. And so on that morning when they take off, they're going to be conducting um, simulated air defense where they're basically going to dogfight. So, you know, jets go out. One guy is going to be the bad guy. The other jets are going to play the blue forces. They're going to conduct simulated intercepts where they come and they dogfight each other. Um, to practice their skills. And they also do things like simulated bombing runs and so on. They don't have any weapons or anything like that. So during that training, they get a call. They're like, hey, um, Fast Eagle, um, we're basically uh, redirecting you to a wor real world tasking. We have a, a radar target that we want you guys to go take a look at. So we're revectoring you out there. They ask them, do you have any weapons loadout and so the pilots are like, that's weird, because why, why would they ask that? And they're like, no, we don't have any weapons on our jets. We're just doing training. So we're not sure why they ask that, but they start speculating that maybe um, these are drug runners. Maybe there's um, some other type of aircraft that shouldn't be there. So they, they're flying out there. They're getting closer and closer, maybe 60 miles they have to go. I think they're, you know, now they're going farther away from San Diego. Um, they're going west. Uh, so as they get closer and closer to this radar target, um, they're being directed to, they get to the visual arena where they should be able to see the airplane or whatever it is, and they don't see anything. And one of the pilots notices down below on the ocean, like 20,000 feet below, I think that's a long way. You know, if you're flying in a commercial airline, you know, you're at 30,000 feet, you look at the ocean, it's just can't see anything, but they see this white, um, spot on the ocean that might look sort of like um commander fravor said it looked like maybe ocean waves like a there's a underwater mountain or something under the water that's churning up the waves and they're looking at this 
thing. And they start thinking, well, maybe this is the aircraft that crashed into the water that we were supposed to intercept. Maybe now we're looking at a, a, a jet that went into the ocean, and now this is a search and rescue mission there. They just don't know. And so Commander Fravor says, I'm going to go down and take a look. You stay here as wingman. Um, at that time, Lieutenant Alex Dietrich was in the other jet, the other Fast Eagle. Um, you know, so she, I think she was in 100 and he was Fast Eagle 101. So he goes, I'm going to take off and go down and look at it. So he begins descending down to look at this, uh, you know, whatever's in the water down there. It's churning up. He described it sort of like a cross shaped. He thought that it, it almost was the size of like a 737 jet. So several hundred feet in length based on his visual perspective of it. And they're coming down, they're getting, um, you know, thousands of feet. They're, they're down to like 10,000 feet. They're coming down in like a, a, a slow, wide circle around this object in the ocean. And he's got like a, a weapon system officer behind him. It's a two-seat jet. So that his weapon system officer, I think his call name was Noodles, like Noodles. So they see something above the ocean down there. And they're like, hey, Skipper, did you see that? And they both see this white object, maybe 50 feet above the waves, move it around. And he described the movement sort of like a ping pong ball. Like it was, it was sort of going like this, you know, like making this strange kind of um, keeping its orientation, but moving around like this above the ocean. And he said he saw it come up. If that was a 737 in the ocean, he, he reported that he thought it came up to the front of it, like it was checking out the front end of it where the cockpit would have been if it was a plane underwater. So then he says this thing, it, it, and he, as they get closer, they're like they can't see any wings. They can't see any rotor. Like they thought maybe it was a helicopter, but then like they don't see any of the telltale signs of uh, a normal military aircraft. They're getting closer. So he says at some point, this object sort of, they thought it became aware of their presence. Like it somehow detected them. And it turned and started coming towards their jet. So it's it's ascending up, it's gaining altitude. So basically to, to Fravor, that's in some way a concerning maneuver because here comes this aircraft. Now it's coming towards him. He doesn't know what intentions this thing is. And so he begins kind of doing a, a maneuver to come around to get behind it. So it's coming up. And he's coming around like this. He wants to get it. And then, so then the objects are basically, they're, they're going around in a circle together. That's what he described in his interviews. And now he's closer. He gets, I think, within a mile of this object. Um, and they described it as porcelain white, a capsule-shaped object with no visible uh, rotors, no visible wings or control surfaces, no visible engine Nasiels, no um, visible means of propulsion. Um, one of the pilots said that he thought that there was sort of like a, a haziness, like a mirage um, effect to it around it, like it almost uh, had a, a distortion um, around the outside of it. I don't know that Fravor ever uh, mentioned that. And so as he gets closer, he cuts the, the distance and he tries to, um, you know, basically dive down and get, you know, if you're going around in a circle like this, he cuts the circle and wants to, you know, slice it in half to get to, to gain position on this thing. As soon as he does that, this object just basically turns and shoots off into the um, horizon in the blink of an eye, 
one of the pilots said it was like it got shot out of a gun. It just went, it was gone. Um, so the pilots are like, where'd it go? And they're all looking to try to see it. They get on the radio. And the after they um, established contact with USS Princeton, the air intercept controller on the radio says, sir, you're not going to believe this, but that thing is now back at your cap station. And the pilots are like, what? Because their cap station was that point 60 miles to the east off the um, Nimitz where they basically form up after they launch. And this would have been, you know, for them, I don't know how long it would take um, to get back there five minutes or something. But this object was like, according to the Princeton, this same object was back at that point within seconds. So the speed would have been pretty incredible if it was indeed the same object. So that's kind of like what these pilots saw. And that's the story of the Nimitz. They go back and land. Um, They tell some other guys that are coming up to do their training what just happened. And um, it just so happened that they, the second group of pilots had um, a FLIR targeting pod called the AT-FLIR, which is a advanced um, system that allows them to um, bomb ground targets. It's usually what it's used for. Um, It sits on the outside of the jet. So they take off like, you know, an hour or so afterwards. And they quickly actually establish a um, radar contact with an object in front of them. They're going south. And um, Chad Underwood, who's the whistle of this jet, pulls up the AtFLIR system and locks on to this object with his targeting pod. That video is what's called FLIR 1. That video is what was leaked to the interview or to the internet in 2007. So he's recording this um, as they're flying towards it. It's just kind of sitting there, you know, in his display, almost like it's hovering, they said. Um, We're kind of unsure as far as the distance because we don't ever see a, a radar return on it. And then at the end of the video, it kind of just like goes off and there's been some conjecture that that actually was a maneuver on the part of the object. There's also a theory, which I support, that um, the that Chad was changing the um, display field of view and changing the mode of that FLIR. And every time you do that, it tries to reacquire a track. And you can see little bars that go like that. That when he did that, it lost track of the object and the object just simply goes out of the view of the, the FLIR system. And you have to re- remember that the FLIR system, it would be looking, kind of looking through a straw. So about that's the jets. If you look through a straw at something um, that's 10 miles away, it, it's pretty big through the straw if it's magnified like a telescope. But then if you lose the the track of auto tracking of it, it's just going to go out real fast because it's not it's not like a big field of view. It's tiny, actually, 10 miles away. So if you lose track, that object just goes poof. And they never seem to make an, a, an, an attempt to reacquire or re get a lock on for some reason. And that's just the end of the video at that point. Um, that's pretty much in a nutshell. <laughs> I just gave you the, the entire story. And then the other part is just the weird stuff that happened afterwards where people were coming in onto the ship and taking recordings and taking data that sort of thing. So, well, let's let's get to that in a second. I just have a couple of questions. With the, was there a, like a confidential report that was done after that that specific incident? Was there like a bunch of people had to like kind of like sit in a room, and be like, all right, we, let's make sure we all get our story, you know, set to one thing? Because I feel like the military would definitely have to debrief you on something like that. And then also with 
it being leaked onto the internet, I mean, was there a fear that they couldn't just openly put, post it on their Facebook? Did they feel, was it more of a fear of an aspect of how people would just call them nuts or call them crazy? Or was it a fear of like, you don't want the military to find out? Cause I mean, if that video is circulating on, you know, like off brand sites or maybe some type of like, even with the black vault, I respect the black vault. It has a lot of good info on there, but the website it's a, it, it looks like you wouldn't be expecting UFO records to be on there. You know what I mean? Like you would be expecting like a presidential symbol in the corner or something like that people like that officialness aspect of things so i feel like if you're posting these videos on like a site whether it's a bunch of jet fighter pilots that are all discussing what their encounters and everything is it's got a, people want to see validity and that's with like a blue check mark or some type of thing that it comes from and i feel like that's also might be where we have this skew of what people would say oh the ufo stuff it's like disinformation i mean Mick West is one of those big people who try and debunk uh, UFO encounters. I had him on the show, but as much as I respect Mick West, you know, he took a video of a Tic Tac thing and tried to debunk it. And then he showed like, it was like a tampon on a string or something like that floating. And he's like, all you gotta do is add a couple filter effects. I'm like, look, don't tell me what I just saw. That's not the same exact thing. So, I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's an interesting topic. It's something that, um, it's I know we don't have a lot of answers on, but there's a lot of accounts and a lot of stories. I'm just curious where they thoroughly looked through by our government. It's obviously what you mentioned about um, do they have weapon systems on their jets? Well, immediately I start thinking, well, that's what you would ask somebody in case there's a situation that you're not too familiar with or an unknown scenario. And you want to make sure that if something does happen, they have weapons to cover their own ass. Well, yeah, and you could also say, make sure if it's a military secret test, they're not going to, um, the pilots aren't going to open up on it you know, like, <laughs> and, and shoot down their secret uh, aircraft. Um, you know, Mick West uh, tends to think that, you know, with the, the FLIR video that, that they were seeing another jet, a wayward uh, jet that was part of their training exercise, and these naval aviators just mistook it for a UFO. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously, he tries to prove that scenario with his um, analysis and so on. I still, you know, tend to think it's unknown in, in both sides, both the, the pilots and the people that have investigated this have said that really it's an anomaly. Um, we were pretty sure that what Chad filmed was one of these objects. Um, Commander Fravor um, described seeing a higher resolution version of that film where he described a couple of little um, appendages on the bottom of it. Um, so they did see a higher res version that would have maybe shown the shape of it a little better. And they did say that's what they saw visually when they were, when they did the intercept. So, you know, as far as the video on the internet goes, the people that were on the, like, let's just go back real quick. You had a question about the debrief. So there was a lot of stigma, um, commander Fravor and the other pilots took a lot of, uh, grief for coming, coming back and. You know, they were ribbed a lot about it. There was jokes, there were cartoons in the ship's newspaper the next day. Um, they they all go to the Intel, you know, the Civic on the aircraft carrier, the Carrier Intelligence Center, uh, for a debriefing after these training missions. And they give them the videotapes that were taken off the jet from the Atfleer pod. For some reason, Commander Fravor and Dietrich said they never recorded um, from their jets. Which is sort of surprising. I mean, I've gone back and forth of, well, isn't that standard operating procedure? And, and indeed, it is. Like, if you talk to military pilots in fighter in the fighter community, they say fights on, tapes on. It's part of their checklist. Like, when they take off, they hit the recorder because it's used for, you know, training purposes and also to 
for liability if they're actually out there, you know, doing dangerous things. They want these jets to be recording. Um, you know, the, the if you ever seen gun camera footage, they record the HUD um, visual looking forward. There's other recorders that can um, um, record the displays and the radars and so on. Both um, Dietrich and Fravor said they forgot to turn the recorders on. So that's interesting. So they, the only video was this FLIR video that circulated on the Internet. So they turned that over to the um, intelligence center on the aircraft carrier after they land. And from what Fravor said, no one seemed to care, really. Um, we, we did learn that there was a mission report called a misrep um, based on this encounter that was sent up the chain of command. And we did try to find that um, report, which was basically looking at this incident, just a, a report of what happened. It was sent up to the uh, Admiral at Third Fleet. Apparently, this guy basically just 86 this um, report. It's never been found. Um, people said that they didn't want this report to go any further because it would have maybe delayed the deployment of the aircraft carrier um, or had other ramifications as far as, as I mentioned, um, promotion and career and so on, so that the report, this Nimitz misrep is gone. It's missing. Um, so that was kind of what happened according to the fighter pilots. Um, some other people said, you know, that I, I find credible, um, Carson Camerzell, I did an interview with this this gentleman, he was a, a crypto technician on the Princeton. He said that his lead petty officer actually had to go to Nimitz for a meeting about this incident. And, and so Commander Fravor denies this happened. Like, so you have Fravor, the pilot, saying no one cared. No one ever talked to us. No one ever, like, um, debriefed us about this. It was just forgotten. People made fun of us. You have this other guy on the um, Princeton saying no. Because my guy had to fly over to the Nimitz for a, a meeting or debriefing about the specific incident. And the captain of the Nimitz allegedly in this meeting said, like, hey, if anyone asks about this, you know, the story, we just want to get this all together. What you guys saw was like um, ice crystals that were creating an inversion um, in the radar returns. And so that's what this is. Just if, and pretty much the room kind of laughed about this, that that was ridiculous. That was a ridiculous cover story. And as far as I know, it was never used. But this report, I believe this guy, Camerzel, this guy came back to his ship, the Princeton, and told him that day that about this scenario with the captain suggesting this was ice crystals. So there were a couple other, you know, um, stories that talk about debriefings and meetings that were specific to this event so that's kind of what we know and then of course the final theory is some guy on the um unrelated to the actual encounter this video was floating around on the secret network the sipper net within the various ships everyone was watching it that had access to the sipper net they were sending it through the um, secure email systems. <laughs> you know, when they're off duty, they're like all huddling around their computers watching the UFO video. Somebody got it onto a flash drive or a memory stick or whatever out of Civic and smuggled it off the vessel. Now, this is classified information, and that is like a federal, you can go to prison for doing stuff like that. So, you know, that's another topic into itself, the guy that actually smuggled the video off the ship 
and then it ended up on the internet. <laughs> um, he took a great risk in doing so. Um, but that's pretty much the story. Well, I mean, that's like a Snowden type situation where someone's trying to get information out there that they feel like the public should know about. It's just, it, it, it. did you try and look at those examples or those reports from that incident and try and translate it through anything else like in history that has maybe ever been recorded or ever written down in some reports of some sense? Because like, I feel like what the government tells the public is not what they say in private. You know, if you look at the UAP documents openly in public interviews, they would speak out saying, oh, it's a weather balloon or it's this or it's nothing to be worried about or it's this. And then you look at their documents and they're really like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. <laughs> like they're, they're writing something completely else, like different down, which makes you question. It's like now you kind of have to see what they're telling. You don't really take it at the value that they're saying that it is. And the only issue I see with that is, is that you have other people that are have no one's like you, you have more to risk. Than you do to gain from saying that you just saw something that you can't explain or some type of alien craft, especially if you're in the military. So now you're just making those people feel like their opinion is crazy or they're a nut job. And that's not necessarily fair. And I think through the basis of your interviews, for instance, you probably got a good feeling of these people and you realize that they're not like an insane person. They're just a person that saw something that they can't explain. So you have honestly the best, uh, you're, you're the best person to talk to if you've interviewed these people um, about situations like this to test the validity of it. I mean, people can sometimes remember false memories, like something that necessarily didn't happen. They'll add a blemish here and add a thing there. But also if you have a bunch of people remembering the same exact thing and having the kind of same compact story and they're not in, in like their, their top five or something on their cell phone, then it's probably probably something that actually happened and you have to start looking at like why isn't this being released out there and that's just the stigma behind it again yeah i mean it, it's really interesting in my experience with this whole thing is i did um you know the first version of the video was like 15 minutes and it was just a, a small snippet of the actual encounter and i do 3d graphics so when I first heard about it, I just wanted to do a recreation, you know, using my skills to show perhaps what the pilots were seeing. Um, I got a hold of a, uh, it was like a two minute interview with Commander Fravor um, from To the Stars Academy, the Tom DeLong group that had been set up after the New York Times interview came out. They were sort of part of that, um, this group of guys that were trying to get information to the public. They formed a company. They did a History Channel show um, years later on, on this stuff. But at the time, this interview was one of the first um, ones where this commander, Dave Fravor, was talking, and I contacted to the stars, and they gave me permission to use a little bit of his interview. So I put his words against my 3D graphics, some cool music and Navy footage and the jets and everything. And at the end, I asked if anyone um, has information about this to contact me. So in the year after that, I got like a lot of information and, and a bunch of people from these from the 2004 Nimitz event contacted me and they said, hey, I was there. I was on the Princeton. I was on the Nimitz. I was in this squadron. I was doing this. I was here. And, and so I kind of developed these leads and these sources and began trying to put it together. And I quickly found talking to these guys that there was some more to the story that hadn't been told, namely that um, people came aboard the ships and wanted the recordings. Um, they wanted the radar recordings. They wanted the other classified sensor recordings. They wanted the communications, the radio communications, and they wanted it taken off the ship. They wanted nothing to be left behind. 
And I find these people that were telling me this very highly credible people um, that I don't see any reason why they would lie about it. They could have made a mistake as to the reason why this data was taken. It may have been unrelated to the UFO, but I still believe that the taking of the data happened. As I was like working on that, the pilot basically goes to, to the stars and says, I don't know who this Beatty character is. Get my video off his website. Get my interview off this guy's YouTube channel. And if he doesn't take it off, I'm going to sue his ass. And so I was getting threats from TTSA. I basically said, hey, you guys gave me permission to use it. And here's the email. So I sent the email back. They sent a, a lawyer, their lawyer after me and said, well, we changed our mind. Commander Fravor said, take, your, take his interview. You don't have permission to use it. Take it off. So I did. I, I said, okay. At that point, I had about a million views on it. And I said, okay. And so I just took off his interview. And then I added all these other guys that had come forward since then. So Kevin Day, Gary Voorhees, Jason Turner, PJ Hughes. And I interviewed them and I put them in the video telling their story about all the stuff that happened after the intercept of these people coming on board the ship. Well, that rattled some cages somewhere because now you have these fighter pilots basically saying these guys are spouting a bunch of BS that they, that didn't happen, that they're lying or whatever. So I never had that intention. I basically was trying to um, tell the story, just open-minded saying, here's what the pilot said. And then these other guys that say we're on the Princeton, here's what they said. Hey, you know, that, and then they said some officials came aboard and took these recordings for some reason, they had an interest in it. And then after that, the pilots were like, oh, that didn't happen. I would have known about it. These guys are lying. So that's where we are today. And if you look at my film, you'll see that there is no Commander Fravor in the film. And now you know why, because he was going to sue me. <laughs> yeah. What, what what questions did you ask him? Was it questions that he, you felt like you were heading into? Because, I mean, there are some questions I've seen interviewers um, that ask questions where I'm like, yeah, they're not going to be able to answer that question. That's just a very, very rough question. It's a good question. I feel like it's definitely one the public wants to hear, but it's not a question that they're going to answer or they're going to want. I mean, we all know dark or deep questions that kind of cut deep that some people aren't going to be able to answer. Did you ask any of those or was it do you feel like someone met or said something to him or he just didn't feel comfortable um, putting that out there? I don't know. I mean, um, at the time, um, here's the perspective at that very time to the Stars Academy um, had just formed. And, you know, you have Lu Luis Elizondo and, you know, Christopher Mellon, Steve Justice, Tom DeLong, these like high placed people. And they, well, they went and did a, um, an ad hoc interview with Commander Fravor. So they posted that on their website, front and center. Um, that's what I use. I, I had tried to get a hold of Commander Fravor myself because I wanted to include him in the little recreation I was doing, but he never responded to me. Um, I think he was kind of vetting people. He had, he had talked to a lot of national media, CNN, Dateline, or I'm saying Nightline and, um, you know, a bunch of mainstream media folks, but I don't think he saw me as being any uh, worth his time basically. So, cause I was unknown really. And maybe once they saw that I had a million views on, on this little snippet and it was gaining traction, 
that they were trying to control the narrative in some way. They were trying to control this uh, content. You have to realize that soon after that, in the next year, this company comes out with a major History Channel television program about this incident and other incidents, um, featuring very prominently in the beginning this Nimitz encounter. So could it have been that they, they thought they made a mistake in letting me use a little snippet of his interview? I don't know. I've never, ever, ever found the reason. And we even tried to maybe get Commander Fravor to talk to these other um, witnesses, bringing them together to kind of hash it out in private. And he refused. He didn't want to talk to them. He just basically said that what they're saying didn't happen. So probably a contracting. It's like it sounds like a contracting now. It certainly could. It's well, and the other here's the other interesting thing. What about what if it was some kind of um, military test, as you suggested, at a very high level of secret technology or something like that, and that these guys were all part of that. They were actually aware of it, but there was this cover story, um, counterintelligence, so to speak, of what they're going to use this UFO story to cover up this real event of testing something that's U.S. high, cl highly classified technology, and that these other sailors that weren't part of that that kind of have this peripheral thing. And then all these officials come in and take all the stuff off the ship. They erase it. They scrub it. That that's a problem in our cover story. These guys are messing up our cover story. We need to shut these guys down. They're lying. That didn't happen. You know, that sort of thing. So, I mean, if you're a conspiratorial, you might go, I'm like, this guy knows is in, indeed part of this cover up. And they're, they're trying to, get rid of these other people that are outlying witnesses that are messing up the cover story. So you have that. And then you have the ego part of it. Like, Hey, this is my story. You know, shut up, get out of here. I don't know. Well, that's the weird thing about like, I never linked the conspiracy, like that, that angle to the UFO topic. Cause I feel like with how much we don't know that they just leave it up there because if anything, you'll end up making yourself seem more nuts. Like as valid as people say that Lou, Lou is, or maybe Lou isn't, I've never spoken to him, so I can't really sort it out. But just, I mean, if he's high in like military intelligence, much like uh, Nick Pope is or something like that, they do a lot of interviews and I really, at that point, I go, well, you're very, very public about this and you like to do interviews and you like speaking out about all these kind of scenarios and stuff where I go, what I always find interesting is the, the nut that's hard to crack, which is the one that comes onto your show and they study like space and they're like, and then there's like this and then they drop something and you kind of stop and you go, hang on a second. Like, could you explain that a little bit deeper? And it's like, nobody's ever really heard of it. It's like, a, there's plenty of people out there that have probably experienced something that don't really publicize it on their profile, but they'll, they'll tell you what you know if you ask those are the people i look to to be more valid than the ones that are like everyone always goes for the one that has like billions of followers or something like that and i'm like yeah i'm like but their whole profile is that and whether it's one experience or another experience now is this tom DeLong the same one that was the, the singer for that one band yeah 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 that so two of the stars academy was founded by blink 182's lead singer uh tom DeLong. So at that point, he had left the band, you know, um, you know, obviously one of the top multi-platinum bands or whatever at that era in that era. And then he was always interested in the UFO field. And he uh, says that he kind of used his own, you know, investigative skills to go out and talk to people. He went and, and interviewed people and got made some really high powered friends and 
basically formed this company and brought these guys all together. So, so you have this rock star, Tom DeLonge, you have a guy that he brought in from uh, Lockheed, Steve Justice, um, you know, one of, top, one of Lockheed's top designers. Um, you know, you have L Luis Elizondo and Christopher Mellon, who are both coming into the Pentagon. You have, um, who else was in there? Sem uh, Semivan, who was a uh, former CIA. Um, it's a really strange cast of characters that then they do a, a show on the History Channel, you know. And they were going to build an anti-gravity spaceship, and, and they asked for... Uh, public uh, benefit, you know, status, and they basically began accepting um, people could go on and buy shares of their company um, and make investments into the stars. Um, and then, you know, last year, everyone left. I mean, there's a few of these core guys still there, DeLong's still there, and they uh, shifted their mission from this basically um, exposing UFOs to doing more entertainment and TV shows and so on. So, that's the same guy. <laughs> I'd, I'd have to speak to him to be able to sort out the thing because I've seen interviews with them, but also it's very like with the UFO community, a lot of the UFO voices or speakers, they appear on the same shows over and over again, and they don't really branch out to new ones a whole lot, at least from some of the major voices, I would say, which I get it. I mean, you're more comfortable with the show you've been on. It's a, it's a, it's not an easy topic to talk about, especially with all the amount of skeptics there are out there that, you know, you don't know if someone just wants to invite you on their show to kind of roast you or something like that. So I understand that aspect of things but also i feel like when you're constantly just you know coming on the like the same show and constantly saying like around the same type type of topic and not really talking about anything new it's kind of like i don't know that to me just seems like an attention grab and especially if you know you're going to talk about something like this which the interview i saw with tom DeLong was on joe rogan so as as I know a lot of people dismiss that video, but there's a lot of stuff like I can't mention that I can't mention that and I was like, well, now you're not doing yourself a uh, justice, I would say, because if you do say something or no, if you do know something and you can't talk about it, just saying that people go, he doesn't know. And it's like at, at that point, you're shooting yourself in the foot because you probably might have a bunch of information you can't say on air. But if you're going to come on a show, you got to be kind of expecting that someone's going to ask these questions and pry into you a little bit on it. You know, I, I, I totally get that. And uh, people read into what he said on that show. You know, he's claimed that he got into a lot of trouble by saying what he did say um, about the formation of T To the Stars and some of the things that they were doing and seeing in the high level people that, you know, said that they found a life form or whatever. Um, I, I always approach it like instead of just listening to people like, for instance, you know, Tom DeLong, who has a huge following and is basically, uh, you know, towing the line of a very specific narrative. And, um, you know, and indeed, I think that whole effort did result eventually in um, Congress holding hearings, the UAP task force, they should be given credit for doing that, because these guys actually are the reason why that all happened. Um, indeed, that they brought these Navy aviators, Commander Fravor and a bunch of other Navy aviators, and they briefed the senators in closed sessions in the years leading up to all this. So they pushed that ball. You know, you got to give them credit for that. Yeah. But I mean, for me, I just I go, OK, I'm, I hear what you're saying. Great. You know, you know, all these people that have these um, things, they, they appear on shows and they present this information, um, Nick Pope and Jeremy Corbell and. George Knapp and, uh, you know, Richard Dolan and all these people that have these uh, shows. And I listen, I go, okay, that's great. I'm just going to do my own thing. 
I'm just going to go out and start filing FOIAs for stuff that I can figure out. And I'm going to go out and see, because, you know, I had a whole bunch of emails that people were contacting me and I'm going to pick up one of these cases and just try to figure it out myself without listening to anybody else. So that's an interesting thing. And I encourage people to do that, to say, you know, listen to everyone's opinion and their, what, what they're selling. And then if you want, just if you have the time, you could actually do your own little investigation. And the Freedom of Information Act is very powerful. It's not that hard to learn how to do it. And pretty much it's free. Anyone can do it. They have a website. You can go on in two seconds. You, you're, you have a FOIA sent off to the Navy or whoever. Do you feel like it, like they, they honestly have the right to tell you something just because you asked about it? Like for me, I always found like the FOIA was like just something I was like, they don't really have to tell you. They're kind of doing you a kindness of telling you. Cause there's definitely a lot of stuff that people probably ask questions to that they never get a response back. It might be months. It might be a very long time because just cause they can't, I mean, I get it. I understand secrecy. You need secrets. I mean, secrets are important, but also secrets lead to that skeptical thinking or that type of, you know, I'm going to try and think, Oh, it's because they're doing it this way. It's like, well, no, it's actually this way. And this is why they're doing it. But that person runs off on their own little journey. Well, you know, I mean, the way I use it was more for confirmation. For instance, if somebody emailed me and said, hey, Dave, man, you know, I was on the ship or whatever, and I saw these objects, we didn't know what they were. Um, and I'll say, well, when it wasn't, and then they say, okay, it was in July of 2019. I'm like, okay, what ship? And they say, okay, it was USS Kid. And I know that every Navy ship has to keep a log um, from the bridge where every second someone's writing down what's happening. And so that's one way I was using it, basically saying, okay, these are public records that are uh, not classified. The only thing that they don't give you is the names of people, personal information. So they black that out. But I started receiving uh, Navy vessel logs that then you could check someone's story and, and you start looking through the logs and you might discover you're like, oh my God, I am basically, I just confirmed what that dude was saying. Like, what is a Snoopy team? You know, Snoopy team deployed for unknown drones. And then you look up a Snoopy team and you find out it's a bunch of guys with cameras that run out onto the top of the ship and start filming whatever it is. I'm like, wow, okay, I got to get these videos. And you're right. So, you know, hey, we're Navy, um, I would like the Snoopy videos from the US Test Kid. A year later, they go, sorry, those are classified. We're not going to yeah. give them to you. Or they just say, you never get a response. Oh, that's, you have the wrong department. Um, those records are not, uh, kept here. So good luck. And then, but I mean, that's kind of the thing that you can use the FOIA for is to confirm that an event actually happened. And once you have that, then, you know, well, maybe this case is, um, uh, is kind of interesting. We should study it a little more. Now, I, I hate to ask this question, but I got to ask the question. Do you feel like like, are, is there any ideas of doing like another film series, like more of a, a different aspect, at least with how it's becoming like, I mean, the government's talking about it and announcing it, whether they're doing a good job about bringing up good. Like I watched the hearing. It was kind of crappy, in my opinion, only because they'd be like, did you see this or talk about this? They go, no, we don't know anything about that. It's like, but you're our intelligence community that's supposed to be watching these things. You don't know some of these encounters. I'm just curious if you are, have any ideas of making like another film. Well, I mean, the when I did the Nimitz one, it was just basic. Again, I have a full-time job, you know, so I'm working on 
some really interesting projects that I actually that actually pay the bills. So that takes up like all my time. And then, you know, the, but the you're good thing, at it. So you got to do another one. Well, I mean, I, I really like doing, you know, researching this topic. And so if there's something that's really quite interesting, you know, um, I start to do um, working on the graphics with the USS Ronald Reagan case that was, you know, in the in the press probably two or three weeks back. Um, I started doing some 3D animations and I've been doing interviews with the witnesses and getting the story down. I think that that case would make a really cool um, short film um, based on the profound nature of what they described. And then the visual of it is just pretty fascinating because they were like seeing 40 foot wide glowing orange plasma looking thing over the ship, over the flight deck. Um, so that case is pretty interesting. I mean, the the whole government involvement in this investigation would make a great documentary, you know, with the senators and, you know, if you, the, the, the real problem with making television is funding. And, you know, as a filmmaker, that's something that I'm dealing with all the time. Our production company gets hired to do commercials, you know, where the, the client has some money you're doing a commercial for them. Um, independent documentary is more of a challenge because it does take time and effort and crew and, you know, goes on for months and months. And if you have no money, um, it's just a passion project. You're doing it a little here and there at night during your time off. So that's kind of where I am. And I've done work for History Channel. I've done work for other major cable networks. At this point in my career, that's not what I'm doing. I'm doing other stuff. So yeah, I could I could always go and try to pitch stuff, like to, to get it onto those major networks. But I kind of like just doing it on my own because I have complete control of editorial. No one's telling me um, what I can and cannot say, what I can and cannot put in the film. It's very, very, uh, um, I guess it's kind of like a freedom in a way to just do it yourself. So maybe I will. I'm not sure to answer uh, your question. <laughs> especially with the funding aspect, it's like difficult because if you're not getting funding, if you produce it all on your own, you put money into it and then you got to hope that it gets picked up. Like who's going to be, is it going to be stars? Is it going to be HBO? Is it going to be some type of network thing that's going to play your thing? And that's all like, it all depends on how, like, I think the alien topic's a good one only because there's a lot of documentaries I'm seeing about that now, but like I've talked to people who've worked with Oliver Stone and they had to go overseas to get their document or film funded just because nobody would touch that and it's like i guess it depends on the severity or the stigma around the topic for instance if you did something about maybe something that would be a hot topic that would be good for people to watch or people are interested in looking at you're going to get funding easy but if you're talking about something that might be a serious crucial issue you know like the fact that the government might be hiding you know aliens existing or something like that maybe that gets funding but a lot of networks don't even want to touch that yeah i mean the the independent film, I guess, spectrum is all over the place, and you and you do have people that are highly placed that have successes in under their belt. You have production companies that have successes under their belt. Those groups are more successful in getting funding because they're already successful. It's the independent guys that perhaps aren't working for the major networks that you know perhaps giving um, an independent guy money is a little bit uh, higher risk. So. If you're doing it like that, you're probably going to have to do, you know, create a film on your own, pay for it yourself, and then try to shop it around. Like you said, I, in the, with, with the film, like the Nimitz and the other stuff that I'm doing for UFO, at least, I'm just doing it for free and I'm not trying to make a buck off it. Um, 
I'm just giving it, if I find information, I just give it out to everybody. And in some ways that's a better scenario because I'm, I don't have an agenda that I'm trying to create a huge audience and make money off it. Um, not really trying to do that. In fact, I think last month's the first time I um, monetized my YouTube channel and, and it's been up there. I mean, I, the, the one film has almost 6 million hits, but I never made really a dime off of those. Um, people say, well, you should have, but I'm like, eh. You know, when I first tried to, YouTube said, no, we're not going to let you monetize your channel because you're using repurposed content. I'm like, what? Repurposed content? But yeah, I mean, I may do something in the future um, regarding this topic. In fact, you know, just switching the, the theme a little bit, if you want to look at a film project that I want to do, um, look at uh, the website that I created called consciousnessfilm.info. It's just the word consciousness, film, dot, info. And me and this um, PhD, Dr. Bob Davis, um, got together and talked about doing a film that explores the nature of consciousness, which I didn't know a lot about until Nobody I, does. Every, I started, yeah, I started yeah, reading say, his books. Every time I've, I've talked to a scientist, especially people that study consciousness, I'm like, what is consciousness? Like, we're trying to figure that out. I was like, wait, so we don't really necessarily – like, they, here's an uh, interesting theory from uh, Michael Graciano, I think his name is. It's the way that our eyes are. Like, when you see someone with their eyes open, you know that person is conscious, but it doesn't translate when someone is dead. You know, when someone's dead and their eyes are closed, you know that this person isn't conscious anymore. It's not that they're not awake, but there's nothing there. And it's like, it's just interesting because like dogs, they have their eyes open, but we don't necessarily, and we know that they're awake and moving, but do they have like a level of consciousness? You know, what do we deem consciousness? And then that leaks into intelligence, which is just like my brain starts like having like mini seizures in itself. It's, it's a fascinating topic. And a lot of people, like you just said, don't know that it's a mystery. We just kind of assume that um, science kind of knows sort of what it is. But if you really look at what, um, you know, material science says, what is consciousness? Pretty much they say that it's an electrochemical uh, um, processes that are going on in our brain. So like when we die, that that just ceases because, you know, the electrical chemical system in our brain dies so that that's what consciousness is. But for, for most of us that have lived life, we kind of know that, man, that seems too simple. Like there's got to be more of a reason uh, for why we're here and the mysteries of the world and universe. So to me, it's kind of like a mystery like the UFO encounters are. And there's even some overlap um, between those topics. And if you look at that website, you'll see like this whole list of um, mysteries that seem to be very real, but they're what you would call a subjective experience, uh, you know, versus qualitative type science can examine something they can get their hands on a lot of the uh, stuff that involves consciousness seems to be more um, mystical in a way or ephemeral where it's hard to um, do experiments on people that report having, say, an out-of-body experience or a near-death experience or remote viewing or, um, you know, what they, you know, ESP, that sort of thing, those topics of telekinesis and, um, you know, it's esoteric stuff, but I... I think it's super interesting. It is. Yeah, we're going up to this. Um, Bob and I have been invited to go up to film at this uh, institute called the Monroe Institute in Virginia. And it's been in, established since the 1970s. And they explore these questions 
And they do, I mean, it's, it's in some ways done scientifically and there's some people that participate and train at the, this place that are um, both PhDs and MDs, um, emergency room doctors and some very interesting people. So we're going to go up there and film in, um, I think in August. Well, um, is there a place where people can find some of your links? Um, you know, I have a website, um, the nimitzencounters.com and that, you know, basically kind of talks about a lot of the, the things that we were talking about with that case. You can, it's easy to find the link to the YouTube channel. Once you get onto the YouTube channel, you'll see all of the interviews that I conducted related to the Nimitz encounters case. Um, and I even added a new one. It's about the USS Ronald Reagan. Um, I just briefly mentioned that with the plasma ball. And if you go to uh, Medium, I've been writing um, on Medium for a little bit. So it's like dave.beatty.medium.com, I think is the link. And there's three or four pretty lengthy articles. If you really want to take a deep dive into some of these cases that I mentioned, you can go there and, and read about it. And then if you just follow me on Twitter, I always try to like, you know, link stuff that I'm doing. So Dave underscore Beatty, B-E-A-T-Y. Well, I'll make sure I link it all in the description. Um, Dave, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Bye.